We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Welcome listeners. Um, Hopefully you are listening after having listened to Romans chapter 10 on my previous podcast on it. Uh, But if not, if this is your first time, welcome. And uh, this message will stand alone. You'll get some nuggets of truth from it, some some meat, and there'll be some milk in there mixed in as well. Something for anyone at any stage of their walk to be able to glean from. So I've got a lot to go over in chapter 11. Again, hopefully you've got the foundation of chapter 10 set because 10 and 11 go hand in hand together at Paul's intent and his premise of what he's trying to convey to us about the Jews. So he goes on, verse uh, 1 of chapter 11, I ask then, so that word then, as I've talked about in previous podcasts and, and gone at length about, is an indicator word that is indicating to us a previous thought that's just transferring into what he's about to state. I ask then... Has God rejected his people? By no means. So I talked about previously about this concept that the Jews have been forsaken. That um, who they were and their attachment to God through the old covenant has been um, severed. They have been cut off. And we'll talk about that even in a little bit. So this concept could seem confusing if I just look at it on the surface of I ask then, has God rejected his people? And he says no. But the rejection is now um, indicative of another thought that Paul is including here. And essentially his thought is, has he rejected his people from being able to be saved? And the answer is by no means. Not has he rejected or cut off his relationship with them under the old law, but has he completely severed from them of their ability to ever be saved ever again? And he says by no means, because guys look at it. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, which is an interesting statement that he talks about this, because it goes into the beginning of, is it chapter 9, or towards the end? Oh no, going into um, verse 29 of chapter 8. Those whom he predestined, or those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And I talked about that at length in there, so I'm not going to go back into that. But this is the concept of what he's talking about. And it's not just a, a, um, uh, a foreknowledge as far as like a predestination type thing. It's basically exactly what it says, what the word means. Those who he knew beforehand. The Jews were the ones who knew God and who God knew. It's an intimate term, knowing. The Greek word is, is gnosko. Or you could have the word knowledge, which is the knowing of, is gnosis. Gnosko is the Greek word, and it's the same identical type word in translation of what it talks about when it says that Adam knew Eve. God, under the old covenant, knew the Jews, and the Jews knew God. So those who he knew beforehand, 
He hasn't rejected them. He's just basically said, look, I came up with a better way. There's now this way of Christ that you rejected. You didn't want him. And so there has been this separation of knowing you, which is why it says, talks about in, in Matthew chapter 7, where it says that many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord. And he says, depart from me, workers of lawless. I never knew you. So this concept of foreknowing is simply not a predestined term. It's, a, it's one in which it's stated exactly as it says. That he had a knowledge or a knowing of them under the old. But he says, but he hasn't rejected them from being able to be saved in Christ. And that's what the rest of this passage, particularly verse 23 in summarization, is. And it is so crucial to not let go of the context of the passage. He says, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now this is where, um, if you didn't listen to chapter 10, if you didn't listen to chapter 8 and the second part of it, if you didn't listen to Romans chapter 9, the podcast I've done, this is some of those places where you might be like, okay, well here's where the Calvinistic thought process is actually upheld. But let me break some things down for you because one of the things that I talked about in the second part of Romans chapter 8 is this um, understanding that there are oftentimes two sides of perspectives that have to be coupled together to get truth. And so I use a concept of, of Psalms 121 in which it talks about that God will not permit the righteous to be moved. And we, also, we, we hold to the promise but we don't hold to the condition in which Psalm 15 says the one who essentially is never going to be moved is the one who does these things. So there's a doing on the part of man, the condition on the part of man to get the promise on the part of God. But we like to just look at Psalm 121. Or we like to just look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24 when it talks about God is faithful, He will surely do it. He'll keep your soul, body, and spirit blameless for the coming of Christ. But we forget about the Philippians 1, 9-10. We forget about the 1 Thessalonians 3, I believe it's 11-13. through in which it gives the condition of man in which we have to appropriate the right things in order to be blameless or innocent before him on the day of Christ. Go look at the verses. You're going to find it. The promises of God are oftentimes told in Scripture. And sometimes they don't include the conditions of man. You have to find that in other passages. This is where the apologetics of the faith come in. And it is the thing that God has given me as a strong suit in my understanding of the text. So we're going to look at this in just a little bit. He says, um, he's kept for himself these 7,000, right? And he says, there's still 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And I find it fascinating that you see the same exact portrayal of the promises of God, the sovereignty of God, along with the will of man in this one text. I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. These men have chosen to not bow the knee, and so God therefore says in his sovereignty, I have kept for myself. They are still with me, because they've chosen to be with me, I've left them with me. So you see the same dynamic, in the same way as this, in verse 5. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And we could say, oh, okay, oh, grace, the unmerited favor. Man didn't do anything in order to be able to receive this grace. And while there's a truth to that, there's also a lacking perspective within that. And here's what I mean. 
Yes, grace was freely extended to us, and we did nothing worthy of God sending Jesus Christ. In fact, it was quite the opposite. However, that does not mean unequivocally that the whole definition and concept of grace is only unmerited favor. Listen to what he says here in Acts 13, starting in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. You could also look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So let me ask you this. If it's just simply God choosing by grace, and it is solely God's responsibility and God's place to only say, you're going to be chosen by grace, then how can man have any part in having to continue in it or being able to receive it in vain? How is it that it, in Hebrews, uh, was it 12, 14, I think is where it's at, where it says, strive for peace and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. How do I have any part to play in that if it's just unconditionally and unmeritedly given to, as God chooses? You see, here's, this is the problem. We look at a scripture and we say, oh, it's chosen by grace. It's unmerited. It's solely God. But we leave out these other scriptures that clearly show we have a part to play in this. In fact, you can look at James 4, I think it's in verse 8. You can go look in 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6, when it says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. That means that I have a requirement in order to get his grace. So it cannot be defined as just simply unmerited. There's no possible way you can just say it's unmerited. There is a condition to receiving the grace of God. It is not solely God just choosing by grace who's going to get saved and who's not. However, I do um, concede to understand and to know because Scripture shows it that I didn't do anything worthy of God saying, I'm going to send my son to be the salvation for all of mankind. I didn't do anything worthy to deserve it. I didn't keep the law of Moses. You can't keep the law of Moses well enough to deserve the grace of God. But however, once I have become enlightened, once my position has changed from being outside of Christ and now being inside of Christ, my responsibility and the requirement to receive that grace changes. So we can't just say that this concept of being chosen, that there's just this remnant chosen by grace is this predestined term that's there because the rest of scripture shows otherwise. What essentially he's stating is that grace has now been extended to all people and it's no longer on the basis of your merit under the law of Moses. It is now based upon Christ and your position in him. That's essentially what this is stating. And it goes on. I mean, we're going we're gonna to look at some other things. It's like on, the, on just the surface, this looks like a predestined Calvinistic type passage. But there's way too much other scriptures that we would have to ignore to believe a Calvinistic thought process on this. And that's credit to a guy named Kenny that I was talking about the other day. And I just love the quote. There's way too much that we'd have to ignore in order to see a Calvinistic thought process on this. If I take it just as what these verses say, outside of context and outside of the other passages, 
then sure, I totally see how it, how people could come away with it. Let's get into it. But if it is by grace, it's no longer the basis of works, meaning, as Paul's been talking about all throughout Romans, no longer on the basis of works under the law of Moses. He says this, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. You can go into Titus chapter 3, where it talks about the, the same exact concept, the grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, which is an important concept to identify things within the uh, Romans chapter 10 and what we're going to talk about even in this. Essentially, it's our works cannot earn that grace outside of Christ. As an unbeliever, there are no works that we can do that can earn the grace of God. Save this, what he talked about in Romans 10, that I believe in my heart. That God raised him from the dead, and then I confess with my mouth. Which, by the way, is a work in and of itself. It's called submission. And it's bowing the knee. It's a work. But digressing from that concept and semantics within it, the reality is there is nothing that I can do to earn God's grace as an unbeliever. But once that position changes and I become enlightened and God gives me the spirit to be able to accomplish what he wants for me to accomplish here on this earth. Then the requirement changes. Identified through verses such as 2 Corinthians 6, 1. Hebrews 12, 14. Um, you could look again at 1 Peter 5. Where it talks about he gives grace to the humble. So there has to be this humility expressed in order to get that grace. So therefore it's no longer unmerited. Hopefully that makes sense to you because I'm going to keep going on. If it's not, I just encourage you to study it out. Just so you would know, the definition of grace, unmerited, is never found in any scripture or any definition of grace anywhere in the Strong's, the Thayer's, or in scripture. It is an aspect of grace, but it is not the definition of grace. The definition of charis, the Greek word that's used for grace, is this. It is divine influence or power. It's God's divine influence within the heart of that which is not divine. And he says there is a requirement to get it. Therefore, it cannot be defined solely as unmerited favor. So going on, he says, But if it is by grace, it's no longer the basis of works. Again, referencing the law of Moses. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Because remember what he's talking about. He's talking about the Israelites who are under the old covenant. And what were they under? They were under the law. And so he says it's no longer based off of works to be able to find the life of God. We talked about Romans chapter 10. It is now based off of our position in Jesus Christ through our faith in Jesus Christ. Who is it talks about, I believe it's in 2 Peter 1, uh, 3 through 5. It says his, um, his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to a life of godliness. Um, and he goes on, he says that we might become partakers of the divine nature. And actually, I think that might not be the right one. It might be 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. But it says that we are guarded by God's power through faith for salvation ready to be revealed. He says in verse 7, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Now, this is one of those things, again, that you could look at on the service and be like, man, well, I mean, that seems to say what it says, that Israel failed to obtain it. The elect obtained it. The one who God predetermined to attain it. Well, it goes back into what I talked about, the definition of elect means. Electos is the Greek word. It simply means the choicest. 
Okay, which adds a slight different wrinkle to just thinking that there's this foreknowledge or forethought that God simply just elected certain people. It's, it ha- also has a connotation of the choices. And I explained that earlier. I'm not going to explain it again. He says, but the rest were hardened. And you could say, well, God hardened them. It says it right there. God gave them the spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears. God's the one who did that. So God hardened them. But is it only that? Because I'm going to read you several things. Even in, in the New Testament, listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter 3, 7-13. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Notice that it's not God who's hardening their hearts. Notice that it's talking about the Holy Spirit is saying to them, Don't harden your hearts against Him. Listen very carefully. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, because they put me to the test and they hardened their hearts and they were rebellious against me, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then he says this, take care, brothers. The author of Hebrews now speaking to Christians under the New Covenant. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Not God. Did you notice that man had a part to play in this hardening? You're going to find the same thing uh, in the concept of what God tells the people in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 20. And I've got several verses I'm going to, I'm going to read, uh, but I'm flipping to it in my phone, so it'll be a little bit easier to get to. In, ver- in Deuteronomy chapter um, 8, verse 20, Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Notice where the onus of God's judgment and perishing came from. It was from the people not obedient to the word of God, because they hardened themselves against him. You're going to find the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 28, verse 45. Flip into that real quick. He says this. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. Are you catching a theme on this? Joshua 5, 6. Let's read that one. He says this, For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us a land flowing with milk and honey. So what do we talk about in this concept of they were hardened? It was because they first hardened themselves. Remember the concept that he says, seek me, you'll find me, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. Return to me and I'll return to you. Even in 2 Chronicles 15.2, I talked about this one briefly going into Hebrews 13.5 and this misconstrued verse that many people apply unconditionally but they forget the condition. In 2 Chronicles 15.2, he's talking and he says, my people, he's talking to his people and he says, if you forsake me, I will forsake you. If you seek me, you'll be found by me. Notice the condition that is placed on the will of man. 
and the response that God will give. Just like in First Chronicles, um, I'm sorry, Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. It's all over the place. We can't just take one verse and think that it's this predestined sovereignty of God passage and everything else can just be ignored. Look at what he says in Jeremiah chapter 40 verse 3. He says this, The Lord has brought it about and has done as he said. Why? Because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey his voice. This thing has come upon you. To God is faithful to uphold his end one way or the other, whether it's for the judgment that he said that he's going to give or whether it's for the blessings that he said he's going to give. But he says very specifically, I brought this upon you because you sinned against me and you did not obey my voice. Look at Daniel 9.11. Let me flip to that one real quick and see if we can find another concept in which this thing, again, it's littered all throughout, way beyond the whole evidence of two or three witnesses right now, because now I'm reading like the fifth scripture. He says, All of Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. And you're like, maybe you would be one of those that would be sitting here and saying, well... I mean, yeah, but that was the Old Testament. Now we're talking about the concept of grace. Now we're talking about the concept of of Christ. And now it's just a remnant chosen by grace. Okay, well, let me turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 9 through 12. And here's what he says. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Did did you catch what I just said? Each person, as I talked about in Romans chapter 10, each person is accountable to the drawing of God and to the word of Christ being preached unto them, but they are accountable to how they receive it. They have the choice. The coming of the lawless ones by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And check out verse 11. Therefore, remember what it says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Did you catch what it just said? It said it was a therefore God sent them the strong delusion because they refused to love the truth and so be saved and they had pleasure in unrighteousness. God sent them a spirit, a strong delusion So that they may not believe. Why did he do it? Because they chose to rebel and reject him and follow the lawless one instead of him. I think there's just way too much evidence in other scriptures to just simply take these two or three verses and say, Oh, oh, yeah, God hardened them. God had the elect. God kept the remnant. It was all God's part, all in his sovereignty. Man had no choice in it. I think there's way too much evidence to say otherwise. So how do we understand this passage? Essentially, Israel failed to obtain it because they chose to ignore it. And as a result, God's opened it up to the Gentiles. Now was this God's plan from the beginning? 
I believe that it was. But it was God's plan combined with man that brought this about. I don't think we can get away from that truth and that reality. And the rest of it goes on because I'm, I'm going to continue to tie these things in with the rest of chapter 11. Because again, if it's simply chosen by grace and we have no condition attached to that, that there's nothing I can do or not do that would um, merit getting his grace or not getting his grace, that is just unequivocally applied to me no matter what I do and there's no chance of ever being cut off or ever being broken off ever again, then I'm going to have to ask you the question in verse 22 when we get there. Of how is that possible with what verse 22 says in the context of the passage? I remember going through this passage with our church not too long ago. When we were going over Romans, I say not too long ago, close to probably a year ago. And I remember how this part was completely ignored. But it has to be ignored whenever your doctrine conflicts with it. And that's the problem. We've got to have our doctrine not conflict with other verses, but uphold them in harmony. Otherwise, it's not really a pure doctrine. He goes on, he says, um, And David says in verse 9, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. What's he talking about here? He's talking about how the Jews, um, because of their rebellion, because of their rejection, because of their ignoring the word of God, particularly the person of Jesus Christ, God gave them eyes to not see. God gave them ears to not hear what the Spirit is saying. And this is where he's about to go on and confirm that. Where he says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Well, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Whose trespass was it? Was it God that made them trespass? I, I think that you would be on the heretical ground to think that. Because there is no darkness in God. God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted and lured by their own desire. This is what James 1 tells us, 13 through 15. So you can't say that God made them sin and then judged them for it. How unjust would he be for that? And you might be thinking, well, that's exactly what Paul asked the question in Romans 9. Yeah, Paul asked that question. It doesn't mean that it's an eternal decree that he was presenting. It was their trespass that brought about salvation for the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So they would then hopefully, ultimately recognize Christ as the Son of God and turn to Him. That's Paul's hope. Going back into chapter 10, verse 1, even chapter 9, verse 2. He's like, hey guys, I want my kinsmen according to the flesh to be saved. I want them to know what I know. And if I can be that example of Christ to them, of what Christ was to me, or as I use the example Stephen was unto him, then I'll do it. If that means that I'll be put up on a cross for their sake so that I could say, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, then I'll do it. I'll be the example of Christ unto them. He says this, going on. And please, pay very careful attention to this. I might have to break this up into two parts, but we'll see how quickly we go through this. Pay very careful attention. Now, if their, meaning the unbelieving Jews, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? These unbelieving Gentiles, meaning that whenever they would hopefully repent and come unto Christ, how much more does that mean? A person who has 
adamantly rejected him and then chosen to repent and say I was wrong rather than the person who never even knew about him didn't reject him but just never knew he says man how much more sweeter is that when a person who is an unsaved person has chosen to be an atheist and rejects and adamantly rejects the message of Jesus Christ but then they repent and they become a follower why do you think Paul this was so close to his heart is because it was him he was the one that adamantly persecuted the church of Christ and rejected the message of Christ but it was it was him that was the one that I think is so close to his heart and why he's going after the Jews so so adamantly with such passion and sorrow even in his heart and unceasing anguish as he says for them doesn't mean that he doesn't love the gentiles I think it just means he has a soft spot a soft spot in his heart for people who adamantly reject Christ but they come to see him. He says now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. He says now my message is coming to you Gentiles and I want us to understand who Paul is referencing when he's talking about the the word you. Okay? So when he talks about the concept of you, here's who he's referencing. Romans chapter 1 verse 7 to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world this is who is identifying whenever he's writing you so he's talking to these Gentile Christians and he says this inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them for if their rejection means reconciliation Notice he just said they were rejected. But then earlier he says, has God rejected his people? By no means. Understand what we're talking about here. Their rejection from being his people under the old covenant. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now listen, he's about to give a very clear message to Gentile Christians within all of this towards the unbelieving Jews. He says, But if some of the branches were broken off, which I already diagnosed that word, ekleo, it means to ascend or to expel from union. Having a root word of kleo, it means a breaking of bread or you could say the breaking of fellowship. Take that into the concept of what he's talking about. But if some of the branches, meaning the Jews, the unbelieving Jews who did not want to honor Christ as the Messiah... They were the unbelieving ones who rejected him as Christ, the son of the living God. If they were broken off, meaning that they were expelled from union with God. And you, Gentile Christian, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Very clearly um, a picture of a Gentile Christian, a wild olive shoot. And I could go back even into the ark. Um, I'm not going to, but there's a picture of them being grafted in even through that with the dove that was sent out with the, the wild olive shoot branch. But nonetheless, he goes on. He says, it's very important to know who he's identifying when he says you. A wild olive shoot grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not become arrogant towards the branches or the unbelieving Jews. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. He says, know your position. You are in Christ, but you are a branch, not the root. 
You are a branch, not the trunk. The nourishing sap of that root and the trunk system that is the person of Jesus Christ and the glory of God is what supports you. You don't support it. So don't become arrogant towards those branches that are scattered on the ground that have been broken off and are dead. Because remember I said, what would it mean but life from the dead? Those branches were broken off. They are lying on the ground and they are to be gathered and burned if they don't repent. If they remain in the condition in which they are and don't repent, they are to be gathered and burned. And listen very carefully to what he says here. Then you, Gentile Christian, will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. Paul's not denying it. He says they were broken off so that you could be grafted in. The unbelieving Jews were cut off, ascended from their fellowship and union with God, no longer his people, because it's no longer about the old covenant. It's the body that God's prepared for us in this new covenant. Now it's Gentile or Jew, which there is no distinction between the two. He says, now anyone can come in. And they were broken off so that you could be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. Notice the source. He says, so do not become proud, but fear. Isn't that a fascinating thing for him to say? Like, why would he say that? You've come in to share in this nourishing root. You've come in to share in the commonwealth of what God formerly gave to Israel, but now he gives to the spiritual blessings of heaven um, to those who are in Christ. Why would he then say, you stand fast through faith, so don't become proud, but fear? Why would he say that? I think it's all um, capsuled in the next verse. He says this, For if God did not spare the natural branches, meaning the unbelieving Jews, neither will he spare you. Who's you? The Gentile Christians. Note then, which I think is fascinating because the concept here is the the Greek word iado. And it means to perceive and acknowledge. And here's where I think we've gone wrong today in the church. Is we like to acknowledge and perceive the kindness of God. But he says, you aren't supposed to only perceive the kindness of God. He says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. He says, you need to acknowledge both of them exist. I can't stand it when somebody says that to fear God simply means that we need to just respect and reverence Him. Let me just tell you, if that is your idea of fearing God, you don't even have the beginning of wisdom. Because it talks about in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you think that it is only just a respect or a reverence, then you are missing the boat. And I would highly encourage you to seek His face to find out what it truly means to fear God. Even as a believer. Because that's who he's referencing. I can't stress that enough. He is talking to Gentile Christians. That is who this letter is being written to. Those who he says their faith has gone out through all the land. Those who are called to be saints together with him. Who are loved by God. And he says, note then the kindness and severity of God. And check this out. Severity towards those who have fallen, meaning the unbelieving Jews who have been cut off. But God's kindness towards you 
provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. You see, if I have a doctrine of once saved, always saved, then all of a sudden this verse, I'm going to have to do some song and dances around it to try to justify why it doesn't mean what it says. And I can show you verse after verse after verse after verse that confirms that this means exactly what it says. You could even go into 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14. You're going to find the exact same message that the things that took place to the Jews were written down as an example and instruction for us that we might not desire evil as they did. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. God's kindness towards you provided you continue in this kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So let me again bring it back up to the concept of if it is a remnant chosen by grace and that grace is unmerited and I can't do anything against it, whether I can do anything or not do anything that changes my position of grace towards me. Because that's what unmerited favor means. Then how is this true? Because this says, I have to continue in his kindness. Meaning, um, very clearly, I have to do the things that are pleasing to him. Otherwise, I run the possibility of also being cut off. Which is, again, that Greek word, ekopto, it means to be cut off from a tree. Its definition also includes to ascend, to be cut off from union. Essentially, for the branch to be lobbed off and to be dead. And to be gathered, to be burned. And you're like, man, that sounds, that sounds pretty harsh. Well, let me read Hebrews chapter 6. Here's what he says, starting in verse 4. And listen to the same terminology that's used here. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, which by the way is a Greek word, metekos, it means... To essentially have a partnership or union with. So it's similar to a marriage. In which there has now been a becoming one with. So let me read it again with that understanding. Who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared. Become one with. Become a partnership. Have been married unto. The Holy Spirit. Uh, Let me just tell you. There's only one group of people who, who have that true about them. And that is a believer. He says, And have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, which is a Greek word, parapipto, it means to deviate from and to wander and apostatize. He says, It is impossible for those who have met these requirements and then have chosen to apostatize from the faith. They've come into Christ. They have become one with the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God and then have apostatized it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Impossible to restore them again to their position in Christ. Because apostasy means a total desertion from the faith. This is a serious deal. And it fits hand in hand with Romans 11, 21 and 22. Because he goes on, he says, Since they are crucified once again the Son of God to their own harm and hold him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it, if that same land drinks the rain, drinks that Holy Spirit, and it doesn't produce what is useful to the Master, 
Listen to what he says. It is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Now you can't get away from what Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 or 4 through 8 is talking about. It's impossible. You can do all sorts of songs and dance and you can whistle and you can you know, sing to your heart's content. But the reality is you're not going to be able to justify away what it's saying. And you can't do the same with Romans eleven twenty two. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness towards you. Provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And then he goes and he says, And even they, the unbelieving Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. Meaning that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, who he knew previously under the old covenant. He is still extending his hand to them through the person of Jesus Christ. He still wants them to come in. But the choice is theirs. He has the power to graft them in. This is not a losing your salvation and then getting that salvation back in Christ. This is somebody who has never received salvation in Jesus Christ and God's still extending his hand to them under this new covenant because all the transgressions committed under the first, including the rejection of Christ, can be forgiven. So he's not talking about a Methodist viewpoint of this as John Wesley used to, used to try to state that this is somebody who could lose their salvation and get it back. I think Hebrews 6 is very clear. If you apostatize from the faith, it's impossible to restore you again to the position. Impossible. Can't come back. Because you'd have to crucify the Son of Man once again. But he ain't coming back again. The next time he comes is for judgment. Not, not to um, be the atoning sacrifice for sins. As Hebrews 9 talks about. He says, For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This is exactly what I just stated right there. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all of Israel will be saved. Now, a lot of people could look at that and be like, oh, okay, all of Israel. Well, that seems to denote that all of Israel are going to be saved. Well, that's not what it means because we have to understand the context of what he's stating as well as what the rest of Scripture is detailing to us. So I would say that's similar to 1 Timothy 4.10 when it talks about, let me flip to it real quick. In 1 Timothy 4.10, here's what he says. And I'm just going to try to go through this and finish it so I don't have to do two parts. But in 1 Timothy 4.10, he says this, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. How is he the Savior of all people, especially those who believe? What we can understand is, is that the access to Israel, to all of Israel to be saved by faith through Jesus Christ has come. So in this way, all of Israel has the, the opportunity and the access to be saved through the person of Jesus Christ, which is exactly what 1 Timothy 4.10 talks about. Including the fact that in Luke 13, he says very, very clearly that he says that um, you're going to come and stand before me one day. And you're going to see all these people who came from north, south, east, and west, Gentiles all over the place coming up into heaven. And they're actually reclining with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you are going to be on the outside looking in. You're going to say, hey, you came to our streets, Jesus. Don't you remember that? It was Israel that you came to. It was, it was us that you came and preached the message to first. I mean, that's got to account for something. Like, you came to us. 
You taught in our streets. And listen to what he says. He says, when in Luke 13, starting 25, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. Then he will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets, Jesus. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. You know who he's talking to? He is talking to the Jews. And he says, there's going to come a time where you're going to stand before me. And you know what? Some of Israel ain't going to get in. So therefore, I can identify and know that this is not saying that all of Israel will be saved, but it means that all of Israel has the opportunity to be saved through the person of Jesus Christ. Which is why he says this, following. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. How does he take away their sins? When a person comes into the person of Jesus Christ, he wipes away their past sins and becomes the atoning work for their future sins. So that if they confess, he is faithful and just forgives them of our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness only through the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. They are not believers. In regards to the gospel, they are not believers. You are not to be yoked with them. They are considered technically enemies. But what are we supposed to do to our enemies? Is according to Romans 12. Love your enemies. If you see somebody who is considered an enemy, according to the gospel standards, in which they're not part of the union of Jesus Christ, they're not part of it, and you see him hungry, give him something to eat. You see him thirsty, give him something to drink. I'll talk about that in a little bit of what that truly means for a Christian. He says, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, meaning God still loves them. He was their choicest of all mankind and he still loves them. Despite all the things that they did to him, he still loves them and he wants them to be included. But the choice is up to them of what they're going to do. He says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So what does this mean? Well, let me bring it to, again, the premise of Saul. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, I'm going to start it in 23 through 28. Here's what he says. Because if I'm going to take this unconditionally, that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, and I'm going to take this unconditionally to say, if God extends a gift to me, he will never revoke that gift. Whether that be salvation, whether that be a gift of tongues, whether it be a gift of wisdom, none of those things will ever be revoked from me. Here's what he says. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. This is Saul, who, by the way, was made king by God himself. God called him unto the kingship of Israel and God gifted him with the Holy Spirit by which he prophesied, which was the indicator that he was to be the one chosen of God. It says he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, 
Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And you might be thinking, well, that's just, that's just the, the kingship. I mean, that's not really like a gift. Well, can you and I agree that the Spirit of God is a gift that He's given to us as is detailed in the Gospel accounts and even in the epistles? Here's what He says. In verse 14 of chapter 16, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. A gift that God gave was revoked. So what are we to understand this passage to mean? It means exactly what it says. That God is still calling the Jews. And He is still extending the gift of salvation unto them. As He did even under the old. He still has His hand outstretched to them. He has not pulled it back and said, I'm no longer going to call you. I'm no longer going to extend the gift of this salvation of my Holy Spirit to you. I have not revoked that. I have not rescinded that. I am still going to offer it to you because there's no distinction between Jew or Gentile. All, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord in truth can be saved. He says, For just as you were one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. Obviously, all is not meaning all. Because mercy will not be extended to everybody on that last day. We've got to understand the context. He essentially is stating, look, you Gentiles were disobedient and you've been given mercy through Jesus Christ in the same way they've been disobedient and now given mercy through Jesus Christ. Everybody has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Past tense, not future, not present tense. You, who were a sinner and now have been saved by grace, brought into this covenant, are not supposed to remain a sinner. But all people, prior to coming into Jesus Christ, every single one of them has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that includes Mary, for you Catholics who believe out there that she had was free from original sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? And I take issue with some of that because some people talk about a lot about how none of us could ever understand the mind of God. None of us could ever um, understand God's plan or His mystery or any of those things. And I argue with that because Scripture argues with that. I don't believe that's what Paul is talking about. I think he's just saying, how great is God's wisdom. And apart from Christ, we can't even understand His depths. But in Christ, listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says about this. He says in verse 10, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Seems to uphold the concept of how unsearchable are His ways. We can't even begin to know it. 
As he says, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. But listen to what Paul goes on to say. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. What did Paul just say there? He says, but I haven't received the Spirit of the world that can't understand the things of God. I've received the Spirit of God, which he just stated, searches the mind of the individual. He says, no one understands the thoughts of a person except for the spirit of that person. And he says, and I've received the spirit of God so that I might understand the things freely given us. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Paul says very clearly that God has given us access to understand his mind because of the spirit of God that dwells in us. But as he talked about with Job towards the end of Job, he says, but who are you to instruct me on what I am going to do or not do? You have the mind of Christ, which even Christ is in subjection to the Father, as 1 Corinthians 15 says. You have the mind of Christ. You've been given the Spirit of God so that you could understand the things freely given to you and understand the mysteries that were held um, mysterious or held... um, um, Why can I not think of a word that goes into that? Um, That were held secret, that were held veiled for all these years, but now have been unveiled. To those who are in Christ. And he says, and I've given you access to know my mind and what I'm thinking and my thoughts. But you are never in the position to instruct me of what I will do or not do. And I think that's kind of the premise of what Paul is talking about here. He says, therefore. Oh, no, I flipped it to Romans 14 there. He says this. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. Not meaning God, but us. Like it's easy to look at this verse. Who has given a gift to God that God, that, um, God might be repaid? Instead, the way I see this in the context of the passage, or who has given a gift to God that we might deserve being repaid? Hopefully that makes sense to you. But I don't believe that it's saying that God might be repaid. It's that God owes us. In fact, it's quite the contrary as you look into Romans 12 when he says, therefore. And I'll read that in just a second. By the way, who's given a gift to God that he's going to look at me like, it's like, I owe you, man. <laughs> I owe you so much because you've given me this gift. It's the exact opposite. It's that God has given us the gift and we owe him. Which is why it says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him, which is your spiritual worship. So the concept of this whole thing is that God has given us a gift and we could spend our entire lifetime trying to repay him and we would fall short. The problem with much of Christianity today is that most people receive his gift, but they don't spend the lifetime trying to repay him. So they sit on the laurels, or let me just put it like this in the parable of the talents. They'll take the gift and they'll sit on it. But let me just say, that's a dangerous thing. 
Paul says, therefore, because we've been given this gift, this entrance into salvation through the person of Jesus Christ, we spend the rest of our lives trying to repay him. This is why it says things like in 1 Corinthians 7, we were bought the price, do not become bondservants of men. We are bondservants of God. We present our bodies as living sacrifice. And I'll identify that more, even the concept of, of women today who reject giving their body unto God. But God's given us a gift. And we need to spend the rest of our life striving to repay that gift. Which is why it says in Hebrews 12, strive for peace and for holiness. I don't believe it's just peace with man. I think it's peace with God. Strive for peace and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you're not striving to be at peace with God and you're not striving to be holy in all of your conduct, then there's a chance you might not see the Lord. Because that's what the word says. We spend the rest of our life trying to repay a debt that we could never repay. But the worst thing that you could ever do is not try to repay him. And this is why Romans 12.1 says what it does. So, hopefully all this gave you insight into God's heart, God's plan, his mystery of what he's talking about, the Jews and the Gentiles. But it also gave you the concept that he says here. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you provided you continue in his kindness. So just what he says right before it. So do not become proud, but fear. Hopefully this message struck a little bit of fear in you. Maybe a whole lot of fear in you. And the reality and the responsibility that we have within this covenant with God. That it is not solely upon God's effort towards us. But it also requires an effort of us towards God. And this is where Philippians 2, 12-13 comes in when he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is all about his pleasure, not ours. And we need to understand that it is Jehovah that is inside of us. Which is why it requires fear and trembling. And the responsibility of the believer to work out or to achieve and accomplish and bring to fruition or bring to its end our salvation. That's your part. That's my part. Through the grace that God will abundantly supply to us to make it happen. Y'all be blessed.